0: Welcome to your New Mexico government. I'm your host, Khalil Colona. In an early episode of our COVID coverage weeks ago, we took a look into what was happening in prisons and jails. After the episode, we had a deeper understanding of the dangers presented not only to inmates, but staff and the larger community. Today, we get more details about the situation behind the walls, about an important state Supreme Court decision, and about what advocates like the ACLU are doing. We also hear a little bit from family members of people behind bars. That's all coming up later. Next up, executive producer Marisa DeMarco has a news rundown of what we know today, Thursday, May 7th, as of 5 p.m.
1: Last week, another 3.2 million people in the U.S. filed for unemployment. In total, about one-fifth of the U.S. workforce is out of work, according to the BBC. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, drafted detailed guidelines for reopening states, according to The New York Times. But the Trump administration blocked them from being published, calling them, quote, overly prescriptive. The Times got a copy and has an article about it, which we will link to online at KUNM.org. Doctors in New York say blood thinners help increase the chances for survival with COVID patients, The Washington Post reports. In New Mexico, the lockdown in Gallup is extended until Sunday at noon at the request of the city's mayor. And all residents are required to wear masks when they go to businesses, according to KOB. It's still too early to know whether the lockdown is helping slow the spread there, said Dr. David Scrace, the Health and Human Services Cabinet Secretary. There are 204 more confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state today, making the total 4,493, according to The Santa Fe Reporter. Officials also report three deaths, bringing the total number of fatalities here to 172. Albuquerque police are busting people who are in city parks after hours, according to KOAT, and since the start of the pandemic, have issued 58 citations. For your New Mexico government, I'm Marisa DeMarco.
0: Here with me again is Jeff Proctor from The Santa Fe Reporter and New Mexico In-Depth. Jeff, thanks for being with me today.
2: Happy to do it, Coelho. Nice to be with you.
0: You know, people might not understand that when people are incarcerated, like their health is 100% in hands of the state. Explain to our listeners what the constitutional obligation that the state has to prevent the coronavirus outbreak.
2: Well, so the constitutional obligation sort of attaches to healthcare in general. There are both constitutional and legal obligations for the state to ensure the healthcare of people they are, pardon the impolite term, but holding in cages relatively simple and logical extrapolation from there is if there is a global pandemic that potentially anyone in the world is exposed to. So in terms of what the health care obligation is vis-a-vis the coronavirus, I don't know that we have an actual sort of through the court's answer for that yet, but there is a constitutional and legal obligation to ensure the health care of inmates.
0: If nothing is done and we've got prison guards going into the facilities, going home. We've got um, healthcare workers going into the facility, going home. Do we create this Sisyphus situation to where we may have mitigated the virus outside of prison walls, but it's running rampant inside prison walls, and we constantly have these people, the people who work at the facilities, reintroducing it back into the general population?
2: That's a great question, and it it is the question in New Mexico. We do not know the answer right now, and this may be a good segue, because— to date, in New Mexico prisons, there has been so little testing. As of Tuesday, which was the last time I had a count, in the state's prisons, there are 11 prisons that the state oversees in New Mexico. There are a little more than 6,500 inmates and about 1,800 staff. As of Tuesday, the state had tested 13 of those inmates. 11 tests had come back negative, two were pending. They had tested 63 staff. Four of those had come back positive, the other 59 negative. The testing rates inside the walls, whether it be for staff or for inmates, is dwarfed by the testing rate in the general population in New Mexico. So we don't know right now whether there is virus in the prisons or how widespread it is or whether healthcare workers and guards going in and out of the prisons all day um, are bringing it back into the community.
0: You reported that despite the governor's order to let some folks out of prison who meet certain criteria, only a few have been left out. And there's a report from a couple months back that showed that many more people could be released. What do you think the holdup is? Why isn't the DOC complying with this order?
2: I don't know that it, that you could say at this point that they're out of compliance with the way the governor's executive order is written. So far, they've released about 35 people under the governor's executive order. It's drafted in a way that's pretty broad and open to interpretation. The other report that uh, you mentioned that I wrote about is um, it's an annual report produced by the New Mexico Sentencing Commission, which is sort of the non-partisan criminal justice think tank here in the state. And what they do is they identify people in the prisons who could be released under a state statute called the Community Corrections Act. At the last publishing of that report, which was October of 2019, they identified 294 people who could be immediately released without any rigmarole. No legislature, no courts, no nothing. All the governor has to do is say these people can be released into various forms of community corrections, whether that's a halfway house, an ankle monitoring program, go home to family if you've got a suitable place to live.
0: Jeff Proctor with New Mexico In-Depth and The Santa Fe Reporter. Thanks again, my friend.
2: Thank you, Khalil. Have a good one.
0: You too. New Mexico has 31 detention facilities operated by various counties. That includes jails and juvenile detentions. KUNM News Director Hannah Colton reached out to the State Department of Health to find out how many people held in those places have been tested for COVID and how many have been released. Here's what she learned.
3: The number of people held in county detention facilities has dropped by just over one-third since the start of the pandemic, according to the New Mexico Association of Counties. They say that population is down statewide from nearly 6,000 in mid-March to about 3,900 at the start of May. Out of the 3,900 county detainees statewide, only 375 have been tested for the coronavirus, most of them in Bernalillo, McKinley, and Santa Fe counties. Eight inmates have tested positive as of this week, three in the Bernalillo County Jail, two in Santa Fe, and one each in McKinley, Rio Arriba, and Otero counties. Four staff have tested positive, all at the McKinley County Jail, according to the association, and no one from any of the 31 county jails have been hospitalized or died.
0: Last month, KUNM reported on the case of an inmate at the Central New Mexico prison in Los Lunas who an advocate said was retaliated against after speaking out about conditions there during the pandemic. KUNM's news director Hannah Colton has an update on that case, too.
3: In mid-April, inmate Andrew Miller told me over the phone about the crowded dorm-style unit he lived in, where he said inmates aren't given soap or masks or reliable information about the pandemic. The next week, an advocate who's often in touch with inmates there told us Miller was punished for speaking out, that he was put in solitary confinement, and had privileges like phone calls revoked. In an email response this week, New Mexico Corrections Department spokesman Eric Harrison said Miller was disciplined for reasons unrelated to that phone interview. He said the Corrections Department does not practice retaliation or tolerate it and that discipline can stem from things like having contraband, dangerous drugs, making threats against staff and, quote, other reasons.
0: Many thanks to KUNM's News Director Hannah Colton for that reporting. My next guest is Maria Elena Lopez. Maria Elena, thanks for being with me today. No problem. Tell me of the situation going on with your brother.
4: My brother is currently at MDC. He was uh, diagnosed with the COVID while he was in there, um, and that's because when my mother was diagnosed with COVID, I'm the one who um, contacted MDC as soon as I found out my mother was positive because I knew there was a great possibility that my brother would be positive as well because he was sick prior to getting to being incarcerated.
0: Hmm. And what happened when you contacted MDC?
4: MDC did not believe me. I got transferred around to several people before anyone really took me seriously. And finally, the only way they took me seriously was because they were starting to ask me medical questions about my mother. And they wanted a lot of information on my mother Mm -hmm. before they'd actually uh, attempt to take him out of general population.
0: Mm -hmm. And walk me through what happened next.
4: I didn't find out anything about my brother until about, uh, I would say, two days later when I saw it it on Channel 4, 7, and 13. That's when I found out that he was COVID positive, and I knew it was my brother because he was the only 39-year-old male at the time who I called in about. So when I saw that, I was like, wow, my brother tested positive for COVID. My immediate thought was, I hope he's getting the proper care that he needs because there's no way for me to get a hold of him. So I did not hear anything else after that. I actually was not able to talk to my brother again until my mother passed.
0: You got in touch with him. You informed him they, about your I mother passing. I did get in touch. Did he, what, what did he say about his treatment while he was there?
4: Well, actually, my brother didn't know he was COVID positive.
0: He, they were, ne- they never, he never was told he was. He
4: was never informed that he was COVID positive. Hmm. I let him know that our mother passed, and I said, he said, did she pass away from the pneumonia? I said, no, brother, she passed away from the COVID virus. He said, Mom had the COVID virus? I said, I called them, and I told them to inform you. He said, they never informed me. And I said, and how are you doing? And he said, I can't breathe. And I'm having a hard time breathing, but no one's paying attention to me in here. I said, you do know that you have the COVID virus, right? And he said, I have the COVID virus. And I said, yes. And his first response was, am I going to die like mom?
0: Did your brother say that when he was sick, was he in contact with other, with other inmates or was he put in quarantine by himself in solitary confinement? How did they house him?
4: Well, actually, when he was first there, he did complain about being sick and that he was feeling hot. And he was getting the chills and he didn't feel well. He did tell them several times and he did not get uh, the attention that he needed. So when they finally did pull him out, they did put him in quarantine. And when I spoke to him, he said he was just in the back by himself and that there was no one going in and checking in on him. I asked him if he got the proper medical treatment that he needed. He said he did get a nebulizer treatment for seven minutes, and he was given an inhaler. And he said, that did not help me because I couldn't breathe.
0: Anything you want our listeners to know who may have a a relative or a friend who's currently incarcerated right now?
4: Um, I just want want them to make sure that we are the voices for them. And so because they're not being heard in there, it's up to us to actually stand up and and defend them. No matter what they've done, no matter what crimes they've done, they still have basic human rights.
0: This is the second time we've talked in less than a week about very, very difficult topics. And I want to say you're carrying a tremendous burden on your shoulders. And I, I not only admire, but I honor your strength and your drive and, and your love for your family.
4: Oh, thank you so much. I do appreciate it. I really
0: do. Yeah. Thank you again for being with me.
4: No problem. Thank you.
0: We reached out to the Bernalillo County Jail for comment earlier this week and again today. They sent us an email link to an FAQ page on the jail's website. According to that page, three people incarcerated in the jail tested positive. One person recovered. Two people were released. None of the cases were contracted inside the jail, according to the FAQ. We'll of course include a link to that page on this post at KUNM.org. This is your NM Government. I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. Every weekday, we're covering the way the virus and health measures are impacting people differently around the state. Stay tuned in weeknights at 7.30 p.m. We are going old school tomorrow, and we want to hear from you. That's right. Give us your shout out. Are you missing someone? Do you want to give a message to people you aren't in touch with? Call up our hotline, leave a message, and we'll play your shout out on the air. Call 505-218-7084 or email us, YourNM gov at gmail.com and we'll be sure to read that shout out. My next guest is Lalita Moskowitz. She's an attorney for the ACLU at New Mexico. Thanks for being with me today.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: So on Monday, the state Supreme Court denied a petition you all filed asking the court to release some people from being incarcerated. Who were you hoping to get released?
5: Sure, yes. So we were hoping to get a number of categories of people released, individuals who are serving for non-serious offenses within a year of release anyway, folks who are serving for technical violations of probation and parole, which means they're not in for committing some sort of new offense, but rather for potentially a drug test or missing an appointment with a parole officer, you know, something like that. And then individuals who have particular vulnerability to this Virus, So have, you know, one of the conditions that the CDC has identified as making them particularly
0: vulnerable. So what do you make of the Supreme Court's denial?
5: It's a really disappointing decision, of course, from the, the Supreme Court. And I guess what I should say about that, too, is that the state, the Corrections Department who we sued, still have the power legally under statute to do what we've asked. And so we're really hoping that even absent an order from the court, that they will decide to do those things. And what we learned, actually, very shortly after the argument on Tuesday, I think, was that the Corrections Department and the governor are now going to test 100 percent of the staff in the next week or so, I think, and and then start testing inmates and, I think, you know, the goal of testing almost everybody, which is a huge positive first step. So although we had that loss in the court, some good movement is
1: being made.
0: So how do you speak to listeners out there who might already think that this is a really wild idea, letting people out of prison or jail early? What are your words do you have for them to let them know the seriousness of the situation and why this is the most feasible solution to a potentially very dangerous problem?
5: We have to start first from a place of reminding folks that Incarcerated individuals are also members of our community. They are family members, they have loved ones, they are individuals who are still deserving of protection from this very deadly virus. They are living in conditions, you know, there's such this heightened danger and these are people who would be released back into our communities anyway, who we will be embracing back into our communities. And so to do so early and protect people, you know, because we we haven't as a state, we have abolished the death penalty and we've chosen not to, to use that. And so to confine people, especially people with these really serious vulnerabilities in a setting where they're so likely to contract this virus, could be a death sentence and so I think it's just you know reminding people that we're talking about members of our community who you know we have sort of chosen to punish in this way of incarceration but not by exposure to this very serious virus. And the final thing I guess I would say about that is just that an outbreak within those facilities also poses a risk to the community outside of the walls. So, you know, staff come in and out of the facilities. uh, An outbreak poses a risk to the staff at the facilities and then, you know, to their families in those larger communities as well if an outbreak occurs. You know, like our governor has been saying, we really are all in this together and that includes those who are behind the walls.
0: Mm -hmm. She is Lolita Moskowitz. Attorney for the ACLU in New Mexico Thank you very much for being on the show Really appreciate it
5: Thanks so much
0: My next guest is Monique Valdez Monique, thanks for being with me today Thanks for having me So tell me, what's the situation with your husband?
6: He's locked up in Santa Rosa right now And he's been there For going on two years My concerns are they barely got face masks Last week
0: Have you spoken to your husband?
6: Not today, I spoke with him last night
0: What did he have to say about how everything's going, how he's feeling about what's happening?
6: He said there's a lot of changes in there. They're only giving them one hot meal, two sack lunches. On their commissary, they took off all cold food. Yeah, and then the only thing that they did different now is that they let half of them out in the morning at 6 until 1. And then they alternate every day. Mm -hmm. So whoever's out one day from 6 to 1, they'll wait next day to get out from 1 to 8.
0: Now, has your husband, is he feeling well? Has he experienced any symptoms or anything like that?
6: Yesterday morning, he called me around 6 in the morning, and he said that he had woke up throwing up with a headache, and I didn't hear from him until about 9 last night, and he said he still felt the same.
0: He still felt the same. Did he mention if other inmates are feeling ill? He didn't say. Now, have you attempted to contact the facility to try to check up on your husband's care?
6: They tell me that they can't give me no information.
0: So you called up, they tell you they can't give you any information at all on your husband's condition?
6: Yep.
0: Hmm. Have you tried to reach out to any attorneys for help? No. What are your deeper concerns about what's going on with COVID-19 spreading? And, you know, your husband said he didn't feel well. What are your concerns?
6: They're all in there, you know what I mean? Like, there's so many of them, they're all in there. My husband, when he says that he goes to the doctor, that it's a video visit.
0: Is he scared and concerned?
6: He just said that if it gets in there, that they're all screwed, that- we ain't going to know if he's going to be well or not, if he's going to get the health care that he needs. Just last week, they had a scare that one of the nurses tested positive for it. And he said that they had tested 13 inmates that had came in contact with the nurse, but there was still no results of if they had the COVID or not.
0: That's well, got to be really hard on you. How are you holding up?
6: It's stressful, and then not being able to see him, like, physically, make sure he's okay. Like, I got a picture of him, and he was really, really thin, and I got freaked out because that's not him, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Did you visit him often before the shutdown? Yeah. But you can communicate through phone every night.
6: Yeah. They said that they were going to give a video chat, but they haven't come through with that neither.
0: What do you want people to know who may have family, friends, someone they know and people who don't have someone they know in who's incarcerated right now, what do you want them to know about the seriousness of this situation?
6: It's serious because, like I said, if they get sick or they get ill, how are we going to know that they're going to be treated right? Just because they're locked up, they treat them different.
0: Well, you got a tremendous burden on your shoulders, and I thank you for taking time out of your day to really to tell us about your husband's condition and to express your concerns. I really appreciate it.
6: Thanks for calling me back.
0: Of course. My next guest is Eva Bushwald. Welcome, Eva. How are you?
7: I am doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being on the show. So tell us, what do you do and who do you work with?
7: I'm a social worker, and I've spent the majority of my career working in juvenile defense. I'm a school social worker, but I'm very active in community activism and organizations that work with youth that are involved in the juvenile legal system.
0: I've read some reports about the treatment of young people who are incarcerated being definitely below standards. What fears that you have that the treatment will worsen during this time of a pandemic?
7: There's well over 25 states, the sentencing project has shown that shows that the virus is in facilities. And so my fear is the fear we have for everybody. One is just not being able to physically distance yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm super concerned that if someone does get sick, the way that they would isolate a sick young person would feel very punitive, feeling like solitary confinement. But I'm also concerned for young people's mental and emotional health during this time. Mm -hmm. There's really a big fear of like, you kind of just get like bits and pieces of the news. So, you know, if you're a young person, you're hearing lots of people are dying. Yeah. How do you process that if you can't really talk to people? There are very strict limits on who a young person can call when they're incarcerated. And so it might not even be the people that they're closest to. So I just really feel that. long-term mental and emotional health for young people that often have like underlying trauma yeah it's bad enough when there isn't a crisis but adding this on top of it will just make things much worse for them
0: yeah so CYFD has been called out for their lack of transparency what has their response been to that
7: I mean I've have heard the narrative that well because there have been so many reforms in our state and I'm not taking away from all the good work that has been done in the juvenile legal system. So, you know, I do completely acknowledge that there has been a lot of really good reforms, but it's really not the case that all the young people that are in the youth prison are dangerous.
0: The secretary has said that there's plenty of space for social distancing inside the state's juvenile detention centers. But what concerns remain for you
7: no youth should be incarcerated. Mm. That's not a place of healing. Even financially, the amount of resources it costs, the money could be used in so many better ways. Thinking in terms of the crisis, schools are closed. Like our young people can't be around other young people, but can be around us, the people that love and care for them. Mm -hmm. It just must be so frightening for families and loved ones and young people To be away from each other during this time so the concern is it's not about the space it's about they're all our young people and should be treated as such well let's have the conversation here is a very reasonable plan to start looking and getting kids back to the people and communities that love them
0: and if more young people were released would they have a place to go
7: well, that's certainly part of the process, right? You wouldn't just be opening the door and saying, good luck, yeah, which sometimes does happen with a young person that's 21, but you would take each case and look at it. Like I said, you know, if someone has a transition plan in place, that might mean going to like a step-down, CYFD has various, various step-down facilities. It might mean that, it might mean going back to family, and it also might be, getting really creative in this time. Who are the supports a young person has, right? We're in a crisis, like this is scary. And these are young people. Is there an auntie? Is there someone from someone's church or their old baseball coach? Are there other people that could be kind of put in play for that young person to go to? But you would look at each young person's needs and the supports that we could garner for them.
0: Yeah, years ago, I had an opportunity uh, to work with a project with the New Mexico Jazz Workshop where we went to juvenile detention centers and taught the kids music production. And I met a, a wide range of young men and young women who were in the system. Some of them were very violent offenders, other ones not so much, but I came to understand the connection that we made with each kid was something very special and I can imagine that the fact that they're not able to communicate with family or friends or even the people who came in to work with them in programs is a detrimental thing to their mental health.
7: That is a beautiful point about the power of relationships Mm. just so healing and it's in some ways it's so sad that in order for a young person to sometimes get that people have to remove them from their communities. Yeah.
0: What type of advice do you have for family members of young people who are incarcerated right now?
7: If their young person had been represented by an attorney in the past, I would reach out to their attorney to see what can be done. Mm -hmm. And I would just really speak out the narrative for so long has been kind of dominated by the system, but it's families and young people that are being impacted by that. And there's a lot of people, I want families and loved ones of incarcerated young people to know that we're on your side, like we support you. SWAP is very active in working on this. Today is actually sort of the National Free Our Youth Action Day. Mm -hmm. And plus, there's a lot of supports from physicians for criminal justice reform, the Academy of Pediatrics. Lots of national groups support kids being released. It can feel daunting for a family to go up against a system. But find advocates in your community People will stand by you and speak up for you and your loved ones, for sure.
0: Mama, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Thank you for making us aware of these issues. And thank you again for the work that you're doing. She's Eva Bushwald, social worker. Thanks again for being with us.
7: Anytime. Take care.
0: Children, Youth, and Families Department sent an email statement saying no young person in a juvenile detention center has tested positive for COVID-19. No staff member has either. Anyone showing any symptom has been tested and put in a unit away from other young people while waiting results. Any staff members who had contact with someone who was COVID-positive or who had traveled were asked to self-isolate. They plan to roll out surveillance testing next week. An in-depth report will be available on CYFD's website tomorrow, Friday, May 8th. It's resource time. Find the full list of the resources we talk about on each episode and opportunities to donate or help online at bit.com. L-Y slash Y-N-M-G hub. People in prisoner jail or their families can reach out to Millions for Prisoners New Mexico through Facebook or emailing Prisoners N-M at gmail.com Discover how you can help the ACLU by heading to their website aclu-nm.org Head to the site for friends and family of incarcerated persons See the list of organizations that they work with. Head to the F-F-I-P.org slash new dash Mexico and catch up on the reporting from Jeff Proctor at the Santa Fe Reporter head to sfreporter.com people Jeff dash Proctor. Do you remember listening to the radio at that special hour to hear your name from a familiar voice? We do. And we're bringing that experience to you in a time when it's not so easy to reach out to everyone we love. Tune in to hear shout outs from people all over. Time to shout out the people you miss and the folks you love. Tomorrow on YNMG, 730 p.m. Hear us all week long on KUNM's Airwaves at 7.30 p.m. Online, find the show on KUNM.org or subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Your New Mexico Government is a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage is provided in part by the Thornburg Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, the New Mexico Local News Fund, and KUNM listeners like you. Your New Mexico Government is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It's produced by yours truly. News update by Marisa DeMarco. Thanks to KUNM News Director Hannah Colton for her contributions. This show wouldn't sound so good without Taylor Velasquez, Ty Bannerman, and Bryce Dix and their editing prowess. Thanks, y'all. Theme music by Pope. Yes, yes, y'all. I'm Khalil A. Colonna for everyone here at your New Mexico government. Thanks for listening.